Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon and welcome to our virtual event on the successes of the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. We are thrilled you have joined us. At this time, I'd like to introduce our host, Brett Schaefer. Brett serves as the Heritage Foundation's J. Kingham Senior Research Fellow in International Regulatory Affairs. Brett? Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this webinar today at the Heritage Foundation. Before we begin, I want to go over a few housekeeping notes. The session is recorded and will be emailed to you and posted on the Heritage website within 48 hours. All attendees are in listen-only mode at the moment and will be through the program. Today's event will be a conversation in two parts. First, the panelists and I will discuss what each agency is doing to build on the success of the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative, the WGDP initiative. We will conclude our event this afternoon with audience Q&A. You can submit your questions in the chat box. If you want me to ask your question, please let me know your name and what organization you're affiliated with. I'm honored today to be joined by such a distinguished lineup of panelists. First, I want to invite Ambassador Kelly Curry to turn on her webcam and join me on screen. Ambassador Curry is the Ambassador at Large for Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State and was appointed to this position by President Trump in December 2019. Prior to her appointment, she led the State Department's Office of Global Criminal Justice and served under Ambassador Nikki Haley as America's representative to the United Nations Economic and Social Council. Ambassador Curry, thank you so much for being here. Really pleased that you could join us here today. For those in the audience who may not be familiar with the WGDP initiative, would you mind giving us a quick overview of its origins, the purpose, the accomplishments over the past year? Sure. Thank you so much, Brett. Um, and thank you to the Heritage Foundation for hosting us here today. We're really grateful for this opportunity to share, the Trump, to share some information about the Trump administration's efforts to empower women around the world, <clears throat> including through the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative, WGDP. Um, I, I really also want to give a shout out to my girlfriends and co-panelists, Michelle Beckering, uh, Charity Wallace, Laura Smith. I, we just have such a great team, and we all work together so well on this, uh, this cross-government initiative. It's an initiative um, that covers 10 agencies and departments here in the, in the U.S. government, so it requires a lot of coordination, but we seem to manage to do it pretty well. Um, I think it's a credit to the team that we have leading these different agencies and leading their work on this. Um, yesterday, I was really honored to participate in a WGDP event here hosted by Deputy Secretary Deegan that, taught, that laid out and launched our 10 agency implementation plans under Pillar 3. So WGDP has three pillars the, um, that, it's work, that it works across. Women, um, women's training and skills force work, uh, skill workforce training and skills building, um, and women's entrepreneurship, and the enabling environment for entrepreneurship and women's economic participation. And we were rolling out our Pillar 3 plans yesterday. 
Um, we had a had a great all-star panel um, together with Deputy Secretary Vega. We had uh, uh, Advisor President Trump there, and also National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien joined us, and um, Deputy Administrator Bonnie Glick from USAID was there as well. So it was really great to be able to roll out our 10 action plans yesterday about how we're planning to address the legal and regulatory barriers that women face around the world. And this is a really fundamental element. The enabling environment obviously is critical to the success of the other pillars because it allows women to engage in entrepreneurial activity. It allows women to have access to capital. It does. It's the, the foundation on which women's economic empowerment is built. And a lot of the restrictions that we're working on are things that we take for granted here in the United States. Ability to access institutions, ability to travel freely, ability to inherit property on the same basis as men, ability to um, work in the same jobs and sectors as men, and the ability to um, have access to institutions. So we are um, we're really excited about how all 10 agencies and departments of the United States government have set goals for themselves to work on this legal and policy reform initiative. Um, so just going back to the base, the back to basics on WGDP, as you know, it was launched last year by President Trump and in 2019 in February through a national security presidential memorandum. So it's part of our, our um, regulatory framework now in the executive branch. And it has the three pillars I mentioned, the women prospering in the workforce, and that's focused on training and skills building, and women succeeding as entrepreneurs. This is the entrepreneurship, access to capital um, aspect, and then the enabling, women enabled in the economy. So we have, through the first year, we've reached 12 million women um, toward our goal of 50 million women by, by the year 2025. It's a pretty, huge goal, but we are on track to meet it and we're really excited about the progress we continue to make. And we are working really hard through this project to make sure that we're um, increasing opportunities for women for their full and free participation in the economy. And we're partnering with governments, the private sector, um, and, and local communities and women's organizations to help bring women off the sidelines and ensure that they can serve as drivers of economic growth and prosperity in their communities and countries, and including the economic recovery from the COVID pandemic. The, the key for us, as I said, is this enabling environment and removing these regulatory, legal, and, and other barriers that are keeping women off the on the sidelines and out of the economy. Recently, um, back in February, the White House Council of Economic Advisors issued a report that found that $7.7 trillion in new GDP growth could be created if we worked in those five categories alone and removed the barriers to entry for women. And that is huge. And so when we go in and talk to countries about cooperating with us on WGDP, this is a major data point for us. And we're saying you're holding your economy and your country back by continuing to have these laws on the books that don't allow women to fully participate in your economy. And while it's the right thing to do, we're also making sure to argue that it's the smart thing to do. And by doing this, we help build the build partners both economically and otherwise who are stronger and better partners for the United States. And they, that contributes back to our own piece of prosperity. I want to give you one example that we're really excited about. In Jordan, we've been supporting a program through the Middle East Partnership Initiative 
Mepi, that has been working to help um, support a local activist who on her own was already had already launched a campaign to change Jordan's restrictive laws. Jordan has one of the lowest female workforce participation rates in the region, which is unusual. If you've ever been to Jordan, you know it's a fairly open society in the Middle East and, and has a pretty robust economy. And, and that, But women were still having very low workforce participation rates. And so this um, lawyer in Jordan, um, her name is Mayada Abu-Jabbar, and she formed a coalition of other lawyers and other women's organizations and helped launch a social media campaign and public campaign to get the government there to change the laws. We provided some technical assistance and um, support for her organizing work, but this was all done by Jordanian women and um, their supporters in Jordan to really push the government to change the laws. So we're really excited about this grassroots approach that also then we complement through our diplomatic engagement with countries and, and the work that we're doing at the senior level. And so we're going to continue to work with women like Mayada and looking at in places as diverse as Cote d'Ivoire, um, South Africa, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, Afghanistan, Pakistan, just to name a few of the places where we're really focused on driving home this message about removing these restrictions and getting women off the sidelines. Um, and we're really also focused on the impact that we're having and how we're measuring it. And that's really important as well. And we're really especially excited about the private sector's role in this. And um, just another um, one of our good examples, we work with Freeport McMoran, um, which is headquartered in Arizona here in the United States. And they had helped to develop a entrepreneurship training module that we, they worked with the university, um, that with Arizona State University, and they are providing this module free to thousands of women and it's called the Academy of Women Entrepreneurs. And we took this module, with work, working with these partners, with ASU and with um, Freeport McMoran, and have translated it into other languages. We just translated it into Portuguese, and it's now being rolled out across Lusophone countries. Um, and we've had it translated into Spanish, and we're looking to translate it into other languages. And it's one of these great programs that um, has come up through the WGDP umbrella. It's a cooperation inside the State Department. It's cooperation with the, with, um, with the private sector. And it's just emblematic of the kinds of initiatives that we're doing and trying to leverage private sector support for what we're doing. So we know, I, all the studies show that when women have equal opportunities, there's no limit to what they can do and how much they can help contribute to their societies. So we will continue to partner with the countries that want to work with us on this and help them to exploit that potential and really take advantage of it for their own economic benefit. So I think that, that I'll just stop there and I, I feel like I've gone on almost too long, but I'm gonna let you talk to some of my other panelists about the great work that their agencies are doing because they're such great partners. Um, well, I do have a few questions for you before we okay. move on to the panelists. Sure. Um, the first is, I, I thought it was interesting the example you you gave, and I was actually going to ask you for an example uh, as well. So I'm glad you you anticipated my question. But it almost sounds like what you're what you're doing with this program is to sort of capitalize or to give a boost up to uh, efforts that are already existing. It's not like you're trying to start from scratch in places. Is that right? Yes, I mean, this program builds on decades of work that the United States has done to help support women and help them um, advance economically, and also on the work and the lessons that we've learned here domestically 
as well. And we know what works here in the United States to help support women. And so we have a great example that we can share with other countries, but they have to be interested and willing to do this. It's not something that you can force on them. They have to see the benefits themselves. And then we are, we're here with open arms, ready with lots of tools and lots of programs and capabilities to help support them when they're ready to make this jump. Great. Um, it, that's great because uh, it's always better to uh, to build on something that's already somewhat successful than to try and, and create it whole cloth um, from scratch. I was I was curious. You mentioned that there are ten different agencies that are working on this as a joint project, a joint responsibility. Uh, what role does your office um, play in coordinating all of those different agencies? Well, we are kind of the chief cat herder over here, I like to say. Um, we It's a real honor, actually, that the Office of Global Women's Issues, which I had, we've established within the office a WGDP unit and that's, that's staffed to help manage the coordination. We were designated by the interagency as the lead coordinator for this. And um, we have such, as I said before, <clears throat> such tremendous partners that it's it's actually pretty easy because everybody is is really competing to to do a great job and so it's not like I'm having to go around and try to pull people in or get them to do this. There's so much enthusiasm across all the agencies and across all of our partners that it's just a lot of it is just making sure that we're aligned with policy and that it is aligned with our overall policy and our overall foreign policy and that we are coordinating our diplomatic engagement with our programs and that we're you know using all of the tools at our disposal both bilateral and multilateral so a lot of there's a lot of those kinds of just overarching coordination while we're also doing some programs ourselves yeah it's but it's it's also uh this isn't the only initiative in the administration you also have another big initiative in the administration the women peace security implementation plans so how does all this fit together? You've got two big women initiatives going on uh, simultaneously, and I imagine they have to be complementary at least at some point. Well, that's kind of my job is to make sure that we are coordinating these two and making them complementary, these two big pieces of work that we have. And these are the, the priorities that the White House has set for our office. I'm really fortunate in a way that I have incredibly strong White House support for these two major policy initiatives, and that we have great legal and um, le both legislative and um, policy tools coming from the White House to help us implement these two big agendas. They, they are mutually reinforcing, and so we do find that in some of the countries where we're working that we prioritize for WPS, that we're also prioritized for WGDP, and we're also making sure that we are taking advantage of the synergies where they do come up. But there are, it's, it's amazing the number of places where we'll start out talking to them about WGDP and very quickly move into WPS and it's, you know, and, and, and vice versa. It's a, there's a lot of um, mutual reinforcement across these two pillars because these are the issues that really affect the lives of women in the developing world most profoundly. Thank you so much. And thank you also for providing an overview of the WGDP initiative so that uh, people that aren't necessarily familiar with it kind of got an idea of where this is coming from and what it is all about. Um, I know, you know, it's always tough to be the first person to lay the groundwork like that, and I appreciate it. So uh, uh, thank you for coming on, and we look forward to having you join us again on screen for the audience Q&A at the end of the program. Okay.
Thanks. Uh, next, I want to invite uh, Assistant Administrator Michelle Beckering to turn on her webcam and join me on screen. Hi, Michelle. Um, Michelle Beckering was sworn in as an Assistant Administrator at, of the Bureau of Economic Growth, Education and Environment, the E3, uh, on January 6, 2020. Prior to joining USAID in 2017, she served at the International Republican Institute, IRI, uh, from 2005 to 2017, where she provided leadership to democracy, rights, and government's initiatives in Washington, D.C., and she also served as the IRI Residential Country uh, Director in Indonesia. Michelle, thank you so much for coming with us or joining us today uh, to speak virtually, unfortunately. We'd love to have everybody in person, but can't do that. But uh, now that we've just heard from Ambassador Curry about what the State Department is doing uh, to advance the objectives of WGDP initiative, um, could you go over what USAID is doing and how their role is distinctive from what the State Department is doing in her office? Absolutely. And first of all, thank you, Brett, uh, for inviting me to speak today and to uh, share the stage with such an incredible uh, group of leaders with whom I'm really proud to serve in this administration. And as you mentioned, I have a background in democracy, rights and governance, and I, this topic just could not be more important to me uh, personally. I spent about half of my career focused on women's empowerment and equality initiatives. And so it's, it's really a moment of pride for me to be able to champion the White House-led uh, WGDP initiative. Really proud of the efforts of uh, the White House in this regard and um, just the strong interagency collaboration you're seeing around this topic. So then, and I, I really do want to recognize advisor to the President Ivanka Trump. You know, she really was the leader in launching WGDP, and it's really due to her steadfast commitment um, that we ensure that women's economic empowerment remains a top administration priority. And to that end, I've got to, of course, uh, recognize my colleague, Ambassador Curry and Secretary Pompeo, who continue to prioritize women's economic empowerment in all of our U.S. foreign policy initiatives. And that's really important. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about specifically USAID's role uh, in WGDP. And so um, let me start with talking about the fund. So many of you may have heard of the WGDP fund. This is now in its second year. And really, this is important because we operationalize the fund and it totals about $200 million. And I like to say that through this fund, we're really making the promise um, of WGDP real, right? Through this fund, we have already to date been able to partner with more than four 450 partners from the private sector, uh, from NGOs, from local organizations, as well as governments across more than 60 countries around the world. And, and this is important, right, because this is an area that needs, um, it needs a large group of stakeholders, right? If we're going to meet our objectives, if, if we're going to meet our goals, if we're going to make sure this is sustainable, we need to make sure that all of the stakeholders um, are included. And it's really important to us at USAID because, you know, we have championed this idea that really the purpose of foreign aid uh, should be ending the need for its very existence, right? So we have really focused our model of foreign assistance on helping our partner countries advance on their own journeys to self-reliance and seeing ourselves as partners in that journey. Um, and to that point, you know, I want to um, recognize Heritage here. We've actually used the Heritage Foundations in, in Index of economic freedom in our own journey to self-reliance roadmaps, right? So through these roadmaps, we're really assessing countries' commitment 
and their capacity to taking the necessary steps to advancing uh, their economies and specifically to ensuring that they're including women. Um, you know, Acting Administrator Barca often says, you know, we can't have global prosperity if we are actively uh, excluding one half of the world's workforce. And that's really why it's so important to us to focus on, you know, our role in WGDP. Um, before I get into sort of details on what we're specifically doing under Pillar 3, I really do want to sort of paint the picture of what we're talking about. So if you look across the world today, there are still roughly 100 countries worldwide that have jobs that are reserved solely for men. So women cannot um, access or achieve these jobs. That Those restrictions alone affect more than 2.5 billion women. Uh, from equal opportunities in, in the workforce. And while I would say through, um, you know, initiatives, this challenge, you know, we're meeting this challenge and it's improving. If we looked at the current rates of reform, it would take more than 50 years to reach legal equality. And frankly, that's that's just 50 years too long. So what we're looking at you at USAID is really how we can make uh, implement Pillar 3, right? So changing the restrictions that women have on work, on travel, on how they access finance, uh, and most importantly, on their rights under the law. And we recognize that this really um, takes a comprehensive approach, as I said. But one of the things that I have learned in, in a long history of working on these issues is that chain passing laws or changing laws is not enough. We have found time and time again that a good legal environment can be thwarted when those laws are simply ignored or not implemented. And that's why through our Pillar 3 action plan, we've really emphasized that it's not only passing laws, it's really promoting new behaviors um, because we need to have that behavioral change in order to make sure that the intent of those laws are carried out. And we've already gotten started um, already to date on this effort. You know, we've looked at um, regulatory uh, reform and we look at Pillar 3. Let me mention this. We look at Pillar 3 as really intersectional across all three pillars, right? So WGDP has three pillars of how we are um, enabling women's economic empowerment. Pillar three is foundational across all of those pillars, right? So for instance, if we wanna talk about uh, pillar two, which is women being able to access um, more finance. Specifically, we talk about women entrepreneurs. We recognize they're not going to be able to do that unless the regulatory environment allows them to do that. So for instance, property rights. This is something so fundamental to what we're doing. Recognizing that um, most um, loans across the world are backed by mortgage securities, we need to ensure that women have not only the ability uh, to have a legal lease on their land, but that they're able to actually manage their own property. We also recognize, um, going to the stat I um, alluded to earlier, that if we want women to have increased opportunities in the formal economy, we need to actually make sure that there is an environment that allows them to actually, um, first of all, 
get in the job force and maintain there. So we look at things such as restrictive social norms that might hold women back from meaningful economic opportunities. We also have to work with employers to recognize whether it's covert or overt that there may be uh, business practices that actually disallow women from actually achieving um, those opportunities. Um, and so this is something we take very, uh, very seriously. So um, I'm really looking forward to digging more into this in the discussion later, but I just really do want to close and say this. Investing in women's economic empowerment, it is absolutely foundational to all of our development goals, goals across USAID. You know, I cannot overestimate that when women are economically empowered, they absolutely are reinvesting in their families, they're reinvesting in their communities, and this multiplier effect spurs economic growth and it frankly contributes to global peace and stability. We were really proud uh, when the president made women's economic empowerment um, a feature in his national security strategy. And through WGDP, we're really trying to build on this to show those linkages between women's economic empowerment and global prosperity as well as stability. So so uh, in closing, simply put, we can't not invest in this sphere. It is absolutely the right thing to do, and it's actually the smart thing to do. So thank you, Brett. Thanks again for bringing us here today, and I'm really looking forward to a robust conversation. Sure. Um, I'm really glad that you mentioned property rights. As you know, um, the Heritage Foundation has an annual index of economic freedom, and one of our big uh, areas of, of analysis in that index is property rights. So we think that that is fundamental, not only for uh, development in general, but for women's development as well. So I'm glad to see that that's a big part of the WGDP uh, index, the WGDP initiative and pillar three. Um, one thing I wanted to, you to, to ask you to sort of maybe conclude here is it's one thing to talk about, as you mentioned, adopting laws, you wanna see implementation. So how are you measuring the impact uh, overall in terms of progress moving from point A to point B or helping countries actually prove that they've done the things that they have committed to do? First of all, thank you for your own work at Heritage um, on, on leading really this charge uh, on property rights. It, it is, as I said earlier, so fundamental to everything we're doing. Um, and I'm glad you're asking about uh, measuring impact. You know, this is something, especially I think of in my, my former life uh, as, as someone who was a grantee um, of U.S. government funds. You know, anytime we're looking at the taxpayer dollars um, that you know, have so generously been provided to any of us, we need to make sure that we're using them efficiently and we need to make sure that those investments are effective. And we take that very seriously um, at USAID. So um, a couple points to that, how we've thought about that, right? Because in all of our programs under WGDP, first of all, we need to be doing two things. We need to be making sure, one, that we've correctly identified what the problem is. So we've created what we call a WGDP learning agenda. And this really was to make sure that we are accurately, you know, investing in programs and activities that are based on evidence, right? So we look at the gaps through so the learning agenda. What we first have to do is do um, 
an assessment, frankly, of what are the gaps? You know, what are the issues? What are the barriers uh, that are facing women under a specific pillar? And then what we do is we identify what are the accelerators to combating and overcoming that barrier? You know, how can we most effectively and efficiently meet that challenge, meet that gap? And so that's been really important to us. The second thing we've done, so not only are we analyzing and assessing the data in our own uh, programs, but what we've also recognized we have to do is we need other stakeholders at the table. This is not something that one agency or one government can do in sort of a, a vacuum. So we've, um, we've created a WGDP community practice, um, and for those of you outside the uh, bureaucracy, that's what we call USAID Speak, uh, for a key group of stakeholders who come together around an issue. And through the WGDP uh, community of practice, what we're doing is increasing collaboration among the US government, as well as the private sector and the civil society. We recognize um, that if I look at these three groups, we all have a very important role to play, right? The private sector is the one creating the jobs. You know, we, the, the governments, both the US as well as overseas, we're the ones looking at that regulatory framework and how we can change and implement laws. And, and often, most importantly, the civil society is really making sure that we have the local buy-in and the advocates to make sure that this isn't just an idea, let's say, coming out of the, the United States, but it's really tapping into our partners in each country who are really at the, the ground um, excuse me, on the ground at the grassroots level, advocating for this change and working and learning from them. So when we look at that, and then the final thing I would say is we really look at a monitoring and evaluation. Um, we have indicators we use across all of our programs to ensure that we are meet, meeting the goals uh, under WGDP and the framework for uh, monitoring and evaluation that they have set out. And then finally, we evaluate and make this, um, this uh, information and these results um, public because we really want to make sure that we're holding ourselves accountable. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your comments and we look forward to having you join us on screen again during the Q&A portion of the event at the end. Sounds good, thanks. Thank you. Uh, next, I want to invite Laura Smith to uh, turn on her webcam and join me on the screen. Uh, Laura Smith serves as the Chief of Staff at the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Previously, Laura was in the White House Office of the Chief of Staff as Assistant to the Senior Advisor. Before joining the White House, she was the Deputy Communications and Digital Director for the California Republican Party, where she oversaw implementation of the party's digital strategy. Laura, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Brett, and uh, thank you for that kind introduction. And thank you to the Heritage Foundation for hosting today. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here with everybody. Uh, let me also just say thank you to the other panelists who are joining today. Uh, as Michelle and Ambassador Curry so accurately said, uh, I'm honored to be here today and proud to share the virtual stage with so many intelligent, driven women that are leading such uh, important work for this administration. Uh, MCC is grateful to Ivanka for her leadership and to the White House team, uh, Ambassador Curry and her team at State, the team at USAID, Michelle and Acting Administrator Barza for their support and engagement, and of course uh, to DFC and Charity. Uh, MCC is a proud partner of the interagency effort around WGDP, 
And I would also be remiss um, if I didn't take this opportunity to thank our own teams at MCC. We are grateful for their work and for their contributions. They continue to champion uh, these efforts and ensure that our work in this space is having an impact around the world. They're also very excited, uh, as we all are, about yesterday's announcement that MCC is an awardee of the WGDP Interagency Fund and will be working with the government of Cote d'Ivoire to establish a women's data lab that will help support women entrepreneurs with technology and training. For MCC, uh, women's economic empowerment has been integral to our program since the agency's inception. And now the Trump administration, through the WGDP initiative, has built a venue for prioritizing and consolidating the US government's efforts in this area. Not an easy lift, uh, but certainly it has provided MCC with a clear framework and the support needed. Uh, and not actually in not only, excuse me, uh, achieving the goals and implementing the changes that we've set out, but also in holding our country partners accountable to deliver on these uh, as well. Um, our singular focus at MCC, which you know uh, well, Brett, as do many others, is reducing poverty through economic growth. And WGDP aligns with this perfectly. Uh, it prioritizes the critical role that women play in driving economic success and stability in nations around the world, uh, which of course includes our partner countries at MCC. MCC's model is rooted in evidence-based decision-making, uh, that is, we follow the data. Because women's economic empowerment is fundamental to our mission, our rigorous analysis of gender inequalities informs the life cycle of our investments, from the selection of country partners through program design to implementation. For example, MCC's board of directors selects our partner countries based on performance across 20 independent indicators, including the gender in the economy indicator which draws on each of the five areas uh, that are emphasized in Pillar 3 of WGDP. Once a partner country is selected, MCC identifies the constraints to that country's economic growth to help guide the design of that investment. This includes an analysis of barriers, legal, regulatory, and cultural, that would hinder women from participating in or benefiting from economic opportunities that are generated by growth. Under the leadership of our current CEO, Sean Karen Cross, MCC also has recently added women's economic empowerment to our investment criteria, a first for the agency, uh, to further advance WGDP and to direct our teams at MCC to further prioritize women's economic empowerment in developing and implementing our projects. Let me, see, let me say that WGDP uh, and the team at State and the White House and uh, across the interagency has been very supportive in making a direct and immediate impact within MCC's partner countries. We were thrilled to travel to Morocco with advisor Trump last November, uh, where Sean and Ivanka were able to promote the government of Morocco's adoption of legal reforms that strengthen women's ability to own and to inherit land, which speaks directly to pillar three of WGDP, uh, as Ambassador Curry had mentioned earlier. One of those reforms removed, uh, removes legal barriers that women had previously faced um, recognizing the rights of all heirs, including daughters, uh, to hold land titles. MCC actively works with partner governments on regulatory reforms, including the removal of restrictions on women's employment and otherwise um, that impacts their ability to enter and succeed in non-traditional sectors. In Ghana, for example, the energy utility sector recently um, adopted an MCC-supported policy to encourage the hiring, retention, and promotion of qualified women within the utility. 
This is coupled with efforts to create a better workplace environment for the women who work there. These are just a few ways that I wanted to share with you um, in my introductory remarks that we're working with our partner countries to increase economic opportunities for women through legal and regulatory reforms. We aim to maximize impact by not only providing the necessary infrastructure to support economic development, uh, but also by leveraging these investments to bring about uh, further reforms, which will ensure sustainability and long-term growth for the country. Of course, we then, then come full circle uh, and the data is clear, um, which I think Michelle talked about very well. Uh, women's economic participation is certainly critical to sustainable economic growth. And we all know that when women participate in the economy, household incomes increase, businesses grow, and stronger economies emerge and certainly endure. Um, at NCC, we're proud that our programs contribute to Pillar 3. These reforms are perhaps some of the most difficult to achieve, but the impact is powerful and promotes democratic and free market principles around the world. We look forward to our continued partnership with WGDP and certainly the whole of government's effort uh, to improve the lives of at least 50 million women around the world. And um, with that, I'll turn it back over to you, Brett. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Um, I was, I'm kind of curious, um, MCC is a much more uh, narrow approach to U.S. foreign assistance because they have countries that are eligible based on specific criteria and, uh, and a specific process. So uh, it's not as if you can just go into a, a random country and identify a women's initiative that you would like to support. It has to be in a country that's eligible for MCC assistance. So how exactly are you working in those countries uh, or that narrow subset of countries uh, to advance this program while staying consistent with your um, uh, your own methodology, I suppose, would be a way of putting it? Sure. Thank you. Um, thank you for that question. Um, you know, I think that MCC, I completely agree with you. I think we have a... Um, very unique role to play in the U.S. Um, certainly development toolkit, but more specifically um, within the WGDP uh, initiative. I think um, that we, our contributions to WGDP, all to say, uh, certainly reflect that as well. Um, there, are so, there are so many, the reason I'm hesitating is that there are so many great examples throughout our investments um, around the world um, of women whose lives, whose families, whose communities and countries have been positively impacted by MCC's work. Um, we, as you know, create programs to support and train women, provide opportunities to women, to entrepreneurs, uh, business owners, landowners, farmers, the list goes on. Um, but I think that most relevant to your question, uh, there's a couple of pieces I, I would like to hit on, but our role is most unique because we leverage reforms using a model of accountability. Um, and we're, so we are able to leverage real and often uh, incredibly difficult change before even spending a dollar within the country. And like I said, we certainly do this by holding our partner countries um, accountable. But one of the best things about the design of the agency is that um, we are not afraid to walk away from the table if a country is not willing to make or spend uh, the political capital uh, to invest in the necessary reforms that go along with that go along with hard infrastructure. And so I think that um, that's one part of your question, but you are right that our country partners um, are required to go through uh, quite an intensive selection process. Um, and in fact, we find that 
uh, Cote d'Ivoire and others have also used MCC's scorecard as, as a roadmap to even qualify for selection. Um, but I, you know, I think what we find um, and why we we appreciate so much this initiative is that it sort of strikes that um, that balance between for MCC between decisions that we make are data driven and it is clear that women need to be directly invested in but this is a new frontier right and it's something that's the um, we know it's the right thing to do we know that economies can't succeed without directly investing in women and so we um, very much look to our country counterparts to recognize that as well. Um, all to say that meet the scorecard, qualify for the programming, um, let's work together to make sure that you're implementing the, rep the reforms that are necessary um, to ensure that we're sticking to the model while investing in women. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Laura. Um, uh, thank you, and we'll also uh, ask you to come back during the Q&A portion and be on screen with me. Thanks so much, Brett. Thanks. Uh, finally, I want to invite Charity Wallace to turn on her webcam and join me on screen. Uh, Charity serves as the Managing Director of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Uh, International Development Finance Corporation. Prior to assuming her current position, Charity served as the founder and president of Wallace Global Impact, and before that, was the founding vice president of Global Women's Initiatives at the Bush Institute, serving as a senior advisor and chief of, chief of staff to Mrs. Laura Bush. Uh, Charity, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. And uh, just looking forward to hearing uh, the role of, or the uh, how the DFC is contributing to the WGDP initiative. Well, thank you so much, Brett, and, um, and to Heritage for hosting all of us today. It's a really important topic, and we're thrilled to, I'm thrilled to join this really distinguished panel of women um, who I consider friends and strong colleagues, leaders in this area, and just to really be able to have the opportunity to discuss the critical work that the WGDP is undertaking to promote enabling environments through Pillar 3 and to promote women's economic empowerment. It's been you know, a very exciting week for WGDP. Last week, the DFC hosted our WGDP 2X Americas Investing in the Future of Women Conference, at which advisor Ivanka Trump announced the DFC's new commitment to mobilize $6 billion over the next three years to gender smart investments. And then of course, yesterday, there was the incredible event um, hosted at the State Department to celebrate the success of WGDP. Those 12 million women reached with that goal towards 50 million and to announce the Pillar 3 action plan. So um, we're just so proud to be a part of this whole of government effort to empower women. Um, as, as probably most of you know, the DFC is America's development finance bank. So we partner with the private sector to bring economic prosperity and stability to emerging markets around the world. Um, we have projects in over 100 countries where we aim to infuse private sector solutions to some of the world's largest development challenges. We invest in commercial projects to drive economic growth. So our por portfolio spreads across a really a broad range of industries. 
And we utilize a number of specific tools and products for our investment. So, you know, those include debt and equity. It includes political risk insurance. Um, and of course, technical assistance um, is now part of our portfolio. So we lead the private sector capital where it otherwise wouldn't go in order to achieve better development outcomes and economic prosperity. Um, and as every all of my uh, distinguished colleagues have already said, we know that if we want to achieve goals of economic prosperity and stability, that we can't really do that unless we empower women. So we always say arguably the biggest missed market opportunity is that of women. McKinsey Global Institute found that eliminating gender disparities in employment, sector, wages, and credit would add an additional 12 to $28 trillion to the global GDP by 2025. Women are economic drivers. And we know, as has been said, that when we invest in women, we improve outcomes for families, we strengthen communities, and countries are more prosperous and stable. In March of 2018, the um, 2X Initiatives, Women's Initiative was launched at OP then OPIC, now DFC, with commitments to mobilize a billion dollars in five years, so over five years to gender support investments. So those are women owned, women led, and women supporting businesses. And when I started this past March um, as the managing director for our global women's issues, I learned one of the most astonishing facts, which is that when 2X was launched at OPIC the commitment, with the commitment to mobilize a billion dollars towards gender smart investments, there were only four deals in our pipeline that would have met 2X eligibility. But when OPIC applied that intentionality and specific criteria around investing in women's economic empowerment, it surpassed the initial goal within the first year. To date, DFC has closed on 95 2X deals, and we have 106 in our pipeline, and we've mobilized over $3 billion towards gender-smart investments, and that all is in support of the WGDP. It's been that intentionality that has enabled the DFC to meet these milestones, and really that's what's exciting about the WGDP whole-of-government effort. Um, WGDP was launched around three specific pillars, as was described by Ambassador Curry and, and Michelle, and, and, we, and has made really enormous strides towards empowering women economic by, economically by having clarity uh, around the objectives and utilizing the strengths and distinctive roles of each of the 10 interagency partners. So we're bringing all of our unique resources and influences to bear. And that's how we're able to, and we are moving the needle for women. From an economic perspective, um, if, we've if we remove those five restrictions that are outlined in Pillar 3, and that Pillar 3 specifically addresses, so again, it's accessing institutions, building credit, owning and managing property, traveling freely, and then removing restrictions on employment, it, this has been said, but it would result in an increase in GDP of up to 7.7 trillion or 8.3%. Um, I was just uh, curious because um, the role of the, the Development Finance Corporation isn't so much about uh, legal change or institutional change. It's about facilitating investment in developing countries. Um, right. And so 
What unique role do you see the DFC providing in terms of Pillar 3, in terms of the WGDP initiative? How do you see your um, your comparative advantage in this, this whole, whole of government uh, process here? Absolutely. So we recognize that we have a specific and limited tool, namely that of finance. Um, but we believe that finance is one of the most powerful levers to create behavioral and systemic change, which is actually what has to happen in this particular area. We're partnering with State Department, MCC, USAID, and the other interagency partners, as well as our private sector clients on the ground to use our financial tools as a device to negotiate the changes in laws. So really what we're aiming to do is package our financing in specific countries um, to use it as leverage in advocating for legal change. So in order to foster an environment for female borrowers and to ensure that female borrowers are enabled and empowered to build thriving businesses, we know and recognize that inhibitive laws, um, particularly in certain countries, must be changed. So one of the ways that we're doing that is our CEO, Adam Bowler, often uses DFC's influence, so our financial tools, our investments, our private sector partners, as an incentive to change laws that restrict prohibitive um, that are restrict that are restrictive, excuse me, or prohibitive for women from fully participating in the economy. So we use our scaling uh, capabilities and partnerships to promote those changes. And you know, as part of the holistic WGDP strategy uh, to leverage each one of our tools, we're really working to collaborate creatively um, and strongly with our interagency partners. So for instance, we're, we hope to provide specific financial tools that can be used by our partners at state like um, US ambassadors or within the WGDP office. Uh, with MCC, we're providing additional devices and uh, to enhance their really outstanding work that Laura discussed. And then we're working with, um, in collaboration with USAID to serve what we think of as the missing middle by utilizing blended finance models to more effectively reach underserved businesses and underserved women. So by serving that missing middle through the blended finance mechanism, we will be able, better able to equip and identify and address the social, cultural, and of course, legal barriers that are limiting women entrepreneurs from reaching scale. So, I mean, what I can say is we're just really proud of the work of WGDP. We're proud to partner across the interagency to bring our collective strength and power to ensuring that more women are economically empowered around the world. And um, so that's why I'm just so thrilled to be here today and, and with these incredible women to talk about this great work. Thank you so much, Charity, for being with us. Um, if we could have all the panelists turn their cameras on and their audio on, uh, so we'll be turning to the Q&A portion of the event today. Uh, first, uh, I want to thank uh, you for coming here today to the Heritage Foundation, uh, to coming on and uh, giving your presentation, giving us all this great information about what your agencies are doing in terms of the WGDP initiative, and for being willing to field some questions from our audience today. Uh, second, I want to thank our audience and our viewers from, for uh, you know, signing in today uh, to our webinar. Uh, now is their chance to participate in this conversation, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what they have to ask you. Uh, as a reminder, uh, you can submit your questions in the chat box uh, on the, well, depending on where you put it on your screen. I have it in my lower left-hand side. Um, but if you want to, at, want to ask your question, please let me know your name uh, and the organization that you're affiliated with so we can identify who is the questioner here. Um, 
today, uh, the first question that we have uh, comes from uh, Edgar Villanueva from the U.S. Uh, Guatemala Business, sorry, the U.S. Guatemala Business Council, uh, and he has a question for Ambassador Curry and or Ambassador or Assistant Administrator Beckering. Uh, he uh, notes that we are starting to see positive dynamics aimed at economically empowering women and indigenous women in Guatemala and, and in Central America. Uh, for instance, the DFC recently approved a US, uh, $200 million loan to one of our members, uh, Banco Industrial, and 30% of the funds are exclusively for small and medium enterprises owned by women and indigenous women. Following this dynamic, he wants to know, uh, where do we begin to structure a U.S., Guatemala, or Central America bilateral economic agenda that includes these important issues? Uh, and second, what role do you believe the regional private sector uh, can play in raising the profile of women's economic empowerment in leading this structured economic agenda? Yeah, I can take a little bit of that. We're, it's actually already underway. Like I know, for instance, that our Advancing Women Entrepreneurs, um, uh, the AWE program that I mentioned in my earlier remarks, is very active in Guatemala. And we've already seen the impact of it. And we just recently received a report from our embassy there detailing how the most recent class of graduates from that program has experienced a higher degree of economic opportunity. They've been able to start businesses even during the past six months. We've seen them be able to build um, successful businesses and, and keep them going, and that it has discouraged um, them from seeking to migrate to the United States and allowed them to stay in Guatemala, build a business, protect their families, and and actually contribute to the, the country there and contribute to its growth and its prosperity and its peacefulness. So we see this already as part of what we're doing in Guatemala. It's an essential part of our approach to the whole region, in fact, that as, as Michelle said, we are looking to help countries on their journey to self-reliance. This is such an essential part of it. And we know that, um, especially as we look at some of the challenges that we face with this particular region, we really need to create growth and opportunity on the ground and empowering women to be able to do that is 100% is essential. So it's already baked into the cake. And I know my colleagues can talk about more specifics there. Yeah, let me um, join in here. First of all, thank you for the question. Um, and that's an area where we're really uh, proud to work in. And I, I want to actually uh, start out and say that yesterday, uh, excuse me, on Monday, was a really exciting day at USAID because we actually launched our first ever indigenous people's policy. And so, um, Edward, to get to your original point, you know, this is something, you know, that we all take so seriously, right? Because we recognize we really have to focus on the most marginalized um, of all groups. And, and oftentimes in our women's economic empowerment work, we see that as the uh, indigenous groups. And so they have to be our partners. Um, one of the things I would just like to draw your attention to just to give an example of our work. So through USAID, we work really closely on these issues, specifically uh, with our partners through our missions. And I know our, our work in, um, in Guatemala and in the region has been really strong. And I would just draw your attention, we're really proud that actually through our new partnership initiative, we've um, just launched a $10 million um, opportunity that's really seeking to increase women's economic empowerment uh, in conflict prevention, as well as recovery 
recovery activities. And so that's gonna focus on women's economic empowerment. And we have specifically tailored this opportunity to um, at-risk and marginalized women uh, in Guatemala, Mexico, and Honduras. And so through this opportunity, we're really looking at working with them um, on job creation, uh, workforce and vocational training, um, as well as access to capital. And the whole idea through our new partnership initiative is to really make sure we are getting to that grassroots of working with new partners and making sure that all of USAID's funding and opportunities are frankly available to all people. So we're really excited about that and look forward to um, having some results to maybe uh, share with you the next time Heritage has us come back to talk about this issue. Well, you guys are always welcome. Um, the next question uh, is, uh, uh, it looks like it's a question generally to the panel. So whoever would like to respond to it. Uh, it's from uh, Fiora Okareke uh, uh, from Reynolds America. And let me just apologize now for any kind of mispronunciations or any kind of uh, uh, maybe misrepresentations of your questions that I have. I'm, I'm doing my best on reading these things. Uh, but her question would be, um, how can the how the uh, she would like to know how the private sector can get actively involved? Who do we contact? How does that partnership work? I'd love to start with that, and obviously Charity will have a lot to say about that, and she's mentioned some of already DFC's uh, efforts there. So the private sector, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, it, I mean, this ha they have to be our partner, right? So the private sector is really where jobs are being created, right? And we're helping in our role in enabling. So through the WGP fund, from day one, we have prioritized opportunities that involved the private sector as an equal partner. And so let me just give an example. So yesterday during the event, and you can see this through the press releases and fact sheets we sent out, we really highlighted um, specifically a lot of the U.S. Um, and other multinational corporations that we've already partnered with in the last year and a half. So let me give you an example. We're looking specifically with um, companies like Walmart. So how do we, and, and Guatemala is actually um, another Another good country example here of where we've worked with a Walmart, how do we bring more women entrepreneurs and business owners into global supply chains, right? This isn't so easy, right? It, it involves, first of all, the private sector, um, you know, being willing to contract uh, with these women entrepreneurs, but it also requires a lot of work on our side to make sure that women entrepreneurs have, frankly, the capacity, the networks, the know-how, how to actually uh, bridge that gap into going from a small business to, let's say, a, a business that has access. So we were really proud yesterday, one of the announcements was our new, um, our new partnership with WeConnect. And, and many of you probably on this call have worked with WeConnect, uh, led by Elizabeth Vasquez. This is really working specifically with these, um, these partners. I know Kiva is part of this, uh, CARE, et cetera. And what we're looking at is how do we make that linkage um, to the global supply chain? So I would, um, and I'd be happy to provide uh, more information, but that's one that we are really uh, proud of. And then another thing I would uh, note is our work with Pepsi. Through all of our work, so with Pepsi, we've, we've started a new um, opportunity uh, in India. And what we're really looking at is bringing women farmers into the global supply chain. And again, when we do these private sector partnerships, and I'm speaking now directly to you if, if you're part of a private sector and you're on this call, what 
our new private sector engagement policy at USAID focuses on is really marrying our core strengths and capabilities, right? So for example, in, in India, where USAID came to the table in this project was working with women farmers to get access to property rights for their land so they could actually go into contracts and, and be partners with Pepsi in their agricultural supply chain, right? And so we're, we're looking at, you know, in that case, Pepsi came to the table. They had a business case model. They could help women's economic empowerment by bringing more women into the supply chains. And we helped by making sure women were actually in, um, had the ability uh, to actually, you know, enter into those contracts by working with the local government to make sure that there was uh, the legal uh, access to land. This is something I could go on about all day. I actually oversee private sector engagement for uh, USAID. And so if you have questions about this, and I, and I don't know um, if I can put it in the, the text box, um, but simply reach out to us. We have an entire dedicated team at USAID who works on global partnerships. And again, it's a true partnership. So we don't have anything set in stone. It's not a one size fits all model. It's really, you know, you and us sitting down literally at a table and saying, you know, what do both of us bring to the table? Where are you working? Where are we working? And let's make this a true partnership. Thank you, Michelle. And uh, Charity, uh, your entire institution is it's dedicated to partnering with the private sector, so I'm oh, sure you have <laughs> No, absolutely, and thanks for the question. And, you know, it's just so great to hear how each one of our agencies is really looking at these public-private partnerships. It's very critical to the work specifically for women around the world. As we've looked at all the different types of public-private partnerships, those tend to move the needle the most. And as you said, DFC really does work primarily with the private sector. We catalyze their strengths, um, their co-investments with us. We co-create opportunities. And the way in which we look at gender smart investments, it's been integrated into the entirety of the DFC. So our office actually sits in, and works with each of the business lines um, and have the opportunity, again, to pull in all this private sector solutions and dollars in order to enhance and mobilize the work that we're doing. So the DFC will come along and invest. Banco Industrial is a great example. We just provided an investment to them. And as part of that, to meet our 2X criteria, which is supportive of WGDP, at least 30% of the loans um, will go to women, uh, women borrowers, so women who own small, medium enterprises. Um, so that's the way in which we're really bringing in the private sector to catalyze and empower women. There's a lot of ways in which we're doing it. Last week, we also just were able to announce there's a partnership with Microsoft that we're doing, and that's really to um, close the gender digital divide, which is an enormous issue for women all around the world, particularly in emerging markets. So that's one way that we're developing opportunities with the private sector. We also have a MasterCard um, partnership that's we're working in India and again that has to do with on lending to women borrowers in micro and small medium enterprises that we're able to do with a bank there but in partnership with MasterCard so from our perspective we do it from a number of different ways um, and we're always eager to identify new collaborations new and co-investment co opportunities so go ahead and you know get on DFC and and um, and you can you know connect with me as well so I'm happy to take those connections. But Ambassador Curry, I think you were gonna say something, I thought, maybe. Well, we, we take a similar approach as Michelle outlined to try to work with the private sector. We have some, some suspic, 
having trouble with that word, some specific opportunities through um, councils such as the U.S. Afghan Women's Council, the U.S. Pakistan Women's Council that we're working to, um, where we work with private sector and we have public-private partnerships. But we're also looking, working through our global partnerships um, office here at the State Department to make sure that we have platforms that are fit to purpose for um, empowering and expanding and leveraging the um, the capabilities that the private sector bring because I you know we can say it over and over again but it's it's absolutely critical the private sector is where the jobs are going to come from they're not going to be created by the as, as generous as our taxpayers are in terms of providing assistance that allows us to fill gaps and um, meet some of these technical assistance and other critical needs. The actual economic growth has to come from the private sector and getting women into that private sector and being able to participate fully in it and having all the tools and access that they need is where we're really super focused. Um, maybe we can have some folks uh, from your institutions put in the chat box uh, where they can go, a link to where they can go if they actually want to uh, seek out a partnership with one of your institutions. Um, the next question is from Nicole Robinson at the Heritage Foundation. What a great institution. Um, her question is for Lara Smith, and she mentions that uh, the Pillar 3 Action Plan references the Millennium Challenge Corporation's partnerships with implementing uh, government agencies. Um, so the MCC partners with eligible countries through compacts or threshold programs that go through a rigorous selection process. And she wants to know, and you mentioned during your comments about uh, how some of the Pillar 3 um, uh, goals or uh, measurements are already part of your uh, uh, MCC selection process. Um, but is that uh, being formally introduced into the selection process, into the criteria, or is it going to be more informally? Uh, and is this going to be um, just applying to compacts going forward, or are you going to try and adjust them backwards to try and emphasize uh, the Pillar 3 uh, goals uh, in terms of those relationships with countries? Sure. Thank you, uh, Brett, and thank you, Nicole, for that, for that question. Um, I think so a couple things um, that I'd like to touch on. I think first uh, for the institutional investment criteria. Uh, so that's something um, I think I shared in my initial remarks that uh, that's brand new for the agency uh, that Sean's very excited about as our as are our teams. Um, similarly, I know we're working very closely with the DFC, but we've also um, just launched one on blended finance as well. Uh, but it's a um, it gives our teams a uh, directive uh, to really throughout the life cycle of our programs from selection, development, implementation uh, to ensure that women's economic empowerment um, and certainly um, as it relates to Pillar 3, but really WGDP as a whole, uh, to ensure that those elements are being incorporated um, to the extent possible really across the board. Uh, so I think that that's one piece on the institution investment or criteria um, as far as as um, retroactive I think ambassador Curry had talked about this in her remarks um, for the US government um, and then of course I'll speak specifically about MCC but empowering women economically has always been um, important to the United States government um, it has been um, a, it's a part of MCC's design and was a part of um, MCC when it was built I think uh, 
for us and within the Trump administration, the um, collaboration and the focus um, of this whole government effort is the difference um, in is sort of the difference maker for us, I guess, is the best way of of expressing that. So um, I don't want to give the impression that there has been, uh, you know, little investment or focus on women within our programs until uh, 2017 or 2018. 1920, but um, that in fact it has, um, it really accentuates the need to do it better and do it more um, and to bring to light what's already been done. Um, and then, frankly, from an MCC perspective, to emphasize why data should be collected so that we can say this is the difference maker here. Um, investing in women. Is I think Michelle said that you know Administrator Barza will, will speak to this um, as does Sean quite frequently that you cannot have a fully um, productive economy if you are not investing in women and so as far as um, looking backward in MCC's compacts and thresholds if you will um, that's sort of where we um, rely on those those investments most um, as far as looking forward or where we currently are, um, and if I can just speak quite frankly, what's important to us is that these are not seen as um, just tack on investments to an already existing uh, compact. Whether it focuses on hard infrastructure or policy and institutional reform, um, women, women shouldn't be the exception, they should be the rule. And I think that, that for us uh, moving forward, that's that's where we're focused and using this in institutional investment criteria in working with this administration and the World Bank and uh, Heritage and Freedom House and other other um, donors and organizations in ensuring that yes, it's included in the scorecard, but it, that it is integrated into our programs moving forward. And so. Um, I'm happy to talk about, like the deputy secretary talked about um, Samira in Morocco yesterday. Um, there's a lot of great examples in our uh, in our power utility investment in Ghana. Um, we got to meet Grace Gamby in Malawi, who's a fantastic example. So um, I, I hope that answers the question, but that's sort of how MCC is looking at it from um, from 2004 till now in a nutshell. Thanks a lot. I'm um, sorry, Ambassador Curry, you wanted to comment? I just, I did want to add one um, small point on this because I think that as we continue to uh, refine and, and build on the cooperation and the coordination that we're doing, what we're really trying to do here is, I mean, this is such a transformational effort in so many ways, but it's really about deepening and institutionalizing it into everything we do and making sure that we are you know, that it's just become second nature and it's part of the DNA of, of everything that our agencies are doing. And so I think that that's, a, you know, that's one point that I do want to make. Then the other, and I think MCC is a good illustration because they did already have built-in um, pieces, but linking it up to everything else is what has really made the difference here, I think, and what makes what marks WGP as an exceptional platform for us. And then the other thing, just on a very specific note, for instance, one of the things that we're going to be doing going forward, you know, the Department of State annually produces human rights reports and about every country. And we are adding this year, uh, for this coming year, a new indicator 
where we will look at the Pillar 3 laws as part of our reporting to ensure that we are, you know, that we're helping and then MCC can then take that and track it back into their programs and same with DFC and use it as metrics. So this is also part of our very data-driven approach that all of us are taking and thinking about as we move forward with this and how we work across and coordinate and, and support each other through this. Thank you. Uh, the next question is from Charlotte Ponticelli uh, for uh, probably Michelle Beckering at USAID. Uh, she mentions that measuring impact is essential and wants to know what the U.S. government has been doing to measure the impact of the PROMOTE program in Afghanistan, uh, 200 plus million, and what specifically the program has achieved. First of all, um, the question comes from a very uh, good source on this. Uh, uh, Charlie was very involved uh, at the State Department, uh, I believe in the original uh, years of the Office for Global Women's Issues. So uh, thank you for that question. So uh, listen, Afghanistan, a country um, that we're all very concerned about uh, with women's empowerment and rights and equality across a, a myriad of sectors. So let's talk about women's economic empowerment. So for those of you who might not um, be as familiar Promote was um, one of our key initiatives where we were really focusing our investments on women's economic empowerment, specifically in Afghanistan. And while that program preceded WGDP, I have to say there were a lot of lessons learned and linkages we used from Promote when we were designing uh, WGDP. So for example, um, the question that hasn't come up yet, and I, I'm kind of surprised is, you know, how do we do work in countries that are seen as more, let's say, restrictive uh, to women's rights writ large? And, and Afghanistan is often brought up there. So one of the things we've looked at through Promote, and again, I'm going to just kind of build on lessons learned um, in segue to WGDP was first of all recognizing really the myriad of factors it takes to um, economically empower a woman and what does that look like right I think one of the the key challenges we've learned over the years is one it's not always enough to say and forgive my <clears throat> phrasing here butts and seats right it's not enough to just say we have the data we have the numbers we have more women you know who are in school or we have more women who have a job if we don't actually look at what does that education look like and are they learning? And two, what is that job and what are they earning? So um, through Promote, one of the big um, things that we learned and that we have now used in our other programming is this, looking at what are those barriers to women's economic empowerment. So primarily what we learned through that is a lot of the issues are the cultural barriers, right? It may not be that there's not a legal law that allows or prohibits women uh, from doing work in a specific industry. It may actually be to give an example, that there might not be facilities for women to use, let's say, at the job. Or there might be, um, you know, old laws or regulations that wouldn't allow a woman, as I said earlier, to do a specific type of job in an industry. We see this oftentimes in what we consider male, uh, traditional male industries like uh, the utilities industry. So I'm going to give an example from our engine engendering utilities programs, where again, we've looked at going behind the numbers and actually the uh, government of Afghanistan and the, the energy companies have, the utility companies have actually come to us now to see how we can replicate these lessons learned. So it's, it's really, at the end of the day, looking at larger than the laws and recognizing that the 
customary barriers are oftentimes playing an, an outsized role here. Um, so uh, again, with Afghanistan, I think that's that's been um, you know important. I also want to talk a little bit about education, if I can, because I think oftentimes this goes really hand in hand um, in, in going back to the promote the specific promote program. So when we looked at promote, uh, we really looked at also how many uh, girls were in school, and of course USAID is really really proud of our work there. We also recognize that for women, and this is not just about Afghanistan specifically, women in all countries, right? Higher education is oftentimes much like it is here in the United States, right? That's an important uh, platform for accelerating women into these opportunities. So one of the things we looked at is we were able in Afghanistan to increase the number of women enrolled in public universities. Um, and in fact, I believe uh, we increased that from 57 uh, Excuse me, I don't want to give this specific number because I'm going off the top of my head here, but I know that that was a, a key indicator, and I'd be happy to, Charlie, offline with you, provide some more details on that. But we looked at, first of all, how many women are in those universities. We also looked at um, where schools were to the populace. We do this in every country. It's not just Afghanistan. We can't get girls to school if we find out the, school, the schools aren't in, let's say, uh safe distances. This is an area we're actually working on quite hard in Sub-Saharan Africa as well, recognizing that oftentimes parents are really concerned about putting their girls on school buses or walking long distances to work because they're concerned about things such as gender-based violence. So it's not an easy answer because there are so many facets that go into women's economic empowerment. But I do have to say uh, with Afghanistan, we, you know, while it's a country with specific challenges, let me be very clear and say the U.S. government has long for the last 20 years really supported women's constitutional gains in Afghanistan. We're not letting up on that. I know Ambassador Curry and I testified on the Hill about two weeks ago specifically about our efforts on women, peace, and security in Afghanistan, and so she can probably weigh in there. But Afghanistan is continue will continue uh, to be a strong program uh, beneficiary of ours. And may I just comment even from the DFC's perspective. Adam was recently in the region and um, came back, had conversations with the, with um, Afghans and with our interagency partners. Um, I have I worked with the U.S. Afghan Women's Council for many years and have a, just a real heart for the women there, particularly personally. Um, but we're actually really looking to identify opportunities for us to invest in Afghanistan. And part of that has to do with the fact that there have to be stable environments um, for girls to be able to go to school, for women to be able to continue to work and not to um, lose all of the gains that they've made over the last 20 years. So we're all looking at ways in which from the interagency perspective, that we're able to support and promote the things, um, stability and safety and enabling environments for women. And I also just have to add that Charlie has, was one of the founders of the US Afghan Women's Council and her work on this has been, I mean, it's it's been a, a decade, more than de almost two decades long project where she's, um, we, I, I can't say enough good things about the work that Charlie and the other members, um, especially some of the early ones and early supporters like Mrs. Bush have done with the council. And it's a great model for us to look at private sector engagement to really, and look really at grassroots and small projects and the impact that small projects can have, um, when, especially when they're married up with the larger interventions 
that aid and others are doing on systems like educational systems and, and, and health systems, having these smaller kind of last mile projects or first mile projects in some cases are really, really critical. So being able to look across the whole landscape of what we're doing with Afghanistan and see where the gaps are and where we need to fill in um, is, is a very important piece of what we're doing. And, and Afghanistan is a key country where that overlap between WGDP and WPS is, is very, very heavy. So it obviously is a priority country for our office every day across both of the key pillars that we're working on. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks. Um, it's great to know that you guys have such a good relationship with Charlie. Um, I The next question I think is probably uh, it's it's a pretty broad question, so maybe Ambassador Curry, you can uh, you can tackle it. Uh, it's from Bill Robinson at the Huffington Post, and he says that while he can appreciate uh, helping women in Ghana, Jordan, and other countries, uh, but he wants to know how and where WGDP can help women-owned small businesses in the United States. Well, we have a number of domestic um, initiatives that are working on that. And that is, those are being done primarily by the Small Business Administration, the Department of Commerce, and the Labor Department. In fact, we have a whole um, office at the Department of Labor that works on these issues as well and tracks women's workforce participation and all of the critical data. We've also made sure that we're, crack, we're tracking the, um, the COVID response, um, emergency response, um, by gender and making sure that we are doing gender disaggregated data there. So we're working very hard domestically. And as I said at the outset, one of the things that we feel um, puts us in a great position to have WGDP be successful is the incredible example that women here in this country can set and the incredible economic freedom and opportunity that women have in this country. And is it perfect? And do we are there areas that we can improve? Absolutely. And that's why the White House has made such a strong commitment to ensuring that women's skills building and workforce participation are growing. And you'll recall that at the beginning, um, prior to the epidemic, we had some of the highest female labor participation rates that we've ever had in this country. And women were, um, were the gains for women in workforce participation and salaries across the board nearly were outpacing men heading into the, the pandemic. And so we, we do have a powerful example of success here in this country that we can share with others about how they can unlock this incredible potential for peace, growth, and stability, and, and prosperity in their own countries. Thank you very much. Um, I think we have time for a couple more questions, if that's all right with the panelists. Um, uh, the next question is for, uh, for Charity or for Michelle from uh, Rahama Wright from Shea Yalen, a company that focuses on creating jobs with living wages for shea butter producers in Ghana. And she says, one challenge for women face uh, with access to capital is the size of the deal. What is being done to provide gap funding or blended financing to help companies that need to scale before they can access larger sources of funding? Michelle, do you want to take that from the USAID side? To your, to the point, um, you know, there are restrictions within the Development Finance Corporation about the, the size of a transaction. And one of the things that we've really tried to do with our counterparts at USAID is collaborate together to source these smaller deals and encourage them through either grant 
grant funding or early um, early stage funding to get them to be DFC ready. And that's our real hope. So we're trying to identify opportunities to provide blended finance and other um, tools. But Michelle, would you like to speak about all the amazing work that USAID and the others at USAID are doing um, to do this, to, to approach this issue? Perfect. Well, first of all, um, you know, thank you for the question, Rahima. And those of you who might not know Rahima, she has done so much in the country of Ghana uh, to actually help with women's economic empowerment. And I was really pleased to have met her a couple years ago. And Rahima really learned a lot um, from those conversations. So what you're talking about is what we refer to as the missing middle. Right. And so, um, you know, one of the things we've looked at at USAID, and this has been a, a growing curve for us, a learning curve, if you will. I think traditionally we had a lot of our economic growth programs really focused on what I would call sort of the economic poverty level, right? So we were looking at microfinance, right? Really, um, I called it sort of, you know, making sure that really that women in poverty pockets, because of course, as a development agency, right, we're really looking at poverty reduction. So our, our first look was really at making sure uh, women had economic independence and an, and an economic opportunity to really take care of themselves, their children. But then what we found is we were doing a lot of great work on microfinance programs, right, and so many wonderful and companies and banks out there helping us with that. And then we had at the other end of the spectrum, what you're referring to is we had women entrepreneurs. They were already, you know, uh, small, medium and enterprise, let's say, you know, so depending on what statistics you're using for that, a lot of times these were really large companies with, you know, hundreds to thousands of employees. So they were already in the game and maybe what we were helping them do was much higher, right? It was probably the regulatory, um, you know, looking at trade restrictions, uh, you know, border patrol policies, et cetera. But what we realized, I was talking to a lot of entrepreneurs out there, was there was that missing middle. And so what we have tried to do is really increase our programming focused on that. So focusing on women going from micro enterprise, which in many countries is one of the largest um, uh, accelerators to get communities out of poverty, right? And recognizing that what we're doing is capacity building there. Because a lot of this has to do with what I would call a lot of our bread and, and better work, which is capacity building, right? So first of all, working on sort of this, the, um, the, the standards, I'll get, if I can, let me give a great example from the work we were doing with women fisheries in Senegal. So in Senegal, what we recognize is there was a lot of women in the, the fisheries uh, industry, but what they were doing was more so what we would call sort of the production, right? They were, um, you know, killing the fish, you know, um, smoking the fish, you know, the men were catching the fish, the men were running the business and, and the women were really doing sort of the processing. What we recognize is we brought together women coalitions and said, you know, you women are already running these processing houses. You're packaging them. You're getting them ready to sell. But you have such a limited market. Right. And oftentimes the women weren't really in charge of marketing. They were only doing the processing. So what we did was work with women's um, collectives and communities to create actually what would be very close to sort of a, an industry group to come together and 
controlled their finances and began to control their own business products. We then came in through our mission in Senegal, which is where, again, all of our work is really being done on the ground, and worked with them to increase their standards. So once they had increased standards, so they knew, let's say, what health regulations were outside of their own border countries, what we do, and again, I used a great example of the We Connect um, organization earlier. We worked with organizations to say, hey, who's in the global supply chains? And what we're able to do with a different organization is really work with these women fishers in Senegal to connect to European suppliers. And our role, again, was one, making the connection. A part of pillar two in WGDP we don't often talk about is, is the second part to access to finance, which is access to networks. I cannot overemphasize how important that is to women succeeding as entrepreneurs. Oftentimes women, especially in areas, again, that we would consider traditionally male, like agriculture, don't have the access to networks. And so we work with them on business counseling, on creating networks and getting them into the global supply chain. So the missing middle is important. And frankly, it's where we have to invest a lot of our efforts right now if we want to see them make that bridge. Thank you so much. And I think I'm going to, uh, we, I think we have time for one short question, but it's also an opportunity, I think, for Ambassador Curry uh, to put a capstone on the conversation here. And it's from uh, uh, Sayla Naheen. And she wants to know whether women-led NGOs located in the U.S. can join the initiatives and how do they do that? So how do you partner with women-led NGOs in the United States? And what are your, uh, your goals in that area? Well, that is a great question, and we do have a number of domestic partners. I think we've mentioned some of them. You know, we connect, and we um, yes, yesterday, and I know this is um, the Reliance Foundation in India has just come forward as a. I mean, we are open. This is an open door. <laughs> we are um, very enthusiastic about making sure that we have a number of stakeholders, a diverse group of stakeholders involved in this, and we really look to. Um, the community practice, as Michelle said, to help us and continue to improve and strengthen this program. So I think we've put the information out about how to reach out to, to our various offices and where to connect with us. But, you know, we really, this is a pretty open platform, as they say, and we see it as, as there's a lot of opportunity. There are plenty of opportunities out there. There are plenty of needs out there. And we're very happy to enter into a conversation with anybody who wants to join us in this transformational effort. It is a, it's a huge, um, it's a huge effort. We've set high goals um, for ourselves with it. And with 50 million women by 2025 as the goal, we, we want to exceed that goal actually, and, and really blow, blow through it and, and get on to, to doing more and more. We, we know that there are, um, so many women out there who they just need that little little bit of a nudge or that little helping hand, that little step up that will take them from the informal sector to the formal sector, from artisan work to something that's more sustainable and more and better remuneration. So we are really looking at how we help them get that little step up. And it's we've taken a very, I think, it's very targeted in terms of the focus and what we're trying to do, but in terms of how we go about it, we, I think, have a very ecumenical approach in terms of making sure that every intervention is fit to purpose with the particular communities that we're working with, the countries that we're working with, 
partners that we're working with. And so it's it's a really wonderful combination of a, of a very focused, targeted, but large goal and a very um, targeted and boutique approach to each intervention. Thank you so much. And Can I add one thing? Sure. I got it. I'm sorry. I have to add a plug and just everything Ambassador Curry said um, is exactly what we're looking for. And so to provide an actual platform for the NGOs out there who are interested in, and we'll put it in the chat box, that is the one of the exact reasons why we created the new partnership initiative. We actually have open um, calls for groups. Um, they don't have to be women specific, but for business groups, anyone who could mentor or provide or be a resource um, or a partner to the groups that we're working with overseas. So I would just like to again say if you're looking for a tangible opportunity as either the private sector or an NGO, please do look at our new partnership initiative because we really do need your ideas, your innovations, and your experience. Thanks a lot. And uh, in the chat box, Nicole, um, who works with us here at the Heritage Foundation, uh, noted that if you're interested in partnering with the WGDP, uh, you can reach out at WGDP at USAID.gov. So if you have any specific questions, uh, that's a, a place where you can go. So thank you very much, all the panelists. You were great. It was wonderful to have you here today. And it's so wonderful for you to spend so much time with us, uh, running on over 90 minutes now. And uh, thank you for the audience as well for taking the time to join us and for asking such great questions. Uh, if you have any other uh, questions or anything, again, reach out to WGDP at USAID. And the webinar will be available online at heritage.org within the next 48 hours. So thank you so much for coming here today and we really appreciate it.